right, well, welcome back to the show that prepares believers to answer anyone. This is the show, Answer Anyone with Cy Ten Bruggenkate, hosted by Joel Sedecase. I'm Joel Sedecase, and brother Cy, how you doing today, man? Doing fine, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, dude, uh, listen, I am just so excited. I'm still, the, the, the newness and the excitement is not worn off for me. I am very excited about doing this. And I got to say, this is kind of a weird episode to be excited about because of what we're going to be talking about. It's, it's very serious. And yet, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's, there's a joy in unpacking God's truth, in unpacking God's word, seeing how it applies, and, and realizing that in all things, God's word really does have the answers for us. So um, I think we can be joyful. I believe we can be joyful even when we're talking about a topic like we're talking about today, about which more in a minute. But um, but first, Sai, how you doing? What's new? I'm doing fine, brother. It's starting to get uh, warmer down here in Texas. I was uh, that long trip I talked about on the last show. I drove seventy two hundred miles. It was a low of twenty three degrees and a high of eighty three degrees. So Yikes. quite a bit warmer. And uh, yesterday in Texas, it cooled down a little bit, but still, it's a little bit warmer here than uh, my native uh, hometown up in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you ever miss it? Do you, do you miss the Canadian winters? You know, the funny thing is I love winter. Uh, I love winter with snow. Winter mm-hmm. without snow to me is useless. So when there's lots of snow, I love it. I love the havoc that it creates. So I miss that, but I don't miss being cold. And the thing is, the older I get, you know, every year you hear people harping on the winter and it does uh, get to you after a while. And like I said, I was in Florida last week for a bit, and I just loved being able to go outside in January to 80-degree uh, weather. That was nice. I could get used to that. But then I think I might want to do the snowbird thing eventually, where uh, in the summer I go up where it's a little bit cooler, and in the winters go down where it's nice and warm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, I think you're onto something there. You know, a couple of years ago, we had our training for crew, and we were down – we spent the entire month of January in 2019 down in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, uh, outside of Orlando. And it was, no, no, Daytona. And it was the weirdest thing. We would, we were telling my kids, you know, we, we've got young kids. We tell them, you know, Hey, look, you know, it, it's winter back home. It's, it's snowing. We, you know, explain what was going on. And they're like, no, no, it, it, it's summer down here. This is, this is summer. What do you mean? It's winter, dad. That's not right. Because for them, the idea of winter, and being on the beach, you know, is just, it's nonsense. I was in California one December and I saw that the, uh, some places had put cotton on their front lawn to make it look like snow. No. I thought, you know, that's kind of pushing it because, you know, Christmas without snow is kind of weird. But, you know, I, I have a brother in Australia and I guess the tradition down in Australia right. is to go to the beach at Christmas time. And to me, that's just weird. That's so weird. Yeah. I, I remember um, I found that out a couple of years ago and I started looking into it. And sure enough, the crazy thing in Australia is apparently they summer, uh, Christmas is a summer holiday for them, but because they're functionally a Western nation, you know, they all come out of England. And so they like, they decorate as if you know they put up evergreen trees still i mean they decorate as if it's winter it's like mm-hmm. man that's talk about some cognitive dissonance down there i do but, i do love the snow though but I, I was in ohio um a week ago in, in my travels and like i say we were visiting friends in a van and we had to get the van towed up an icy hill because uh, it didn't have the proper traction or tires to get up there and um i don't miss that yeah man same thing happened to me uh, last week, I my back tires slid off the road, and this this icy road I had to have somebody tow me out. Um, yeah, it's it, the struggle is real, man. It, it's one of those things where I, if I were to move, if we ever were to move out of the Midwest and move down south somewhere, that would definitely be something I I wouldn't miss. Although snowman well, with the kids is fun. One thing about the winter, though, that I've always felt in Canada is when the winter's over, you always get that feeling of, I've survived another one. That is true. Satisfaction of that. And I don't imagine you get that where it's always warm, you know, but there is something about surviving another winter, especially if it's particularly harsh, that is satisfying. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There is a sense of accomplishment that goes with that, for sure. And, um, you know, speaking of satisfaction and, and feeling a sense of accomplishment and uh, and having fun, okay, here's a segue for you. Um, a lot of people, when they approach apologetics, the, the defense of the Christian message, the defense of the faith, giving a reasoned defense, 
A lot of times, I think, Sai, there's this idea that it's not fun, that it's it's rigorous and it's it, it involves all this intellectual study and acad- academia, but it's not really fun. But of course, you and I know that that's not necessarily the case. It can be a lot of fun defending our faith and and uh, you know exploring the reasons why we can have strong confidence and faith in the God who has revealed himself in scripture. And I'm just curious, brother, is there a time you can think of when you had the most fun in apologetics? Was there a time that really stands out for you as, man, that was that was a blast? You know, I, I think I can understand what the people are saying when they say apologetics is not fun. Because what we're talking with, we're talking to people that are hell-bound sinners. And if they die unrepentant, then what you share with them, if they if they reject it, it's actually bad news for them. So I would right. say in that regard, it's not fun at all. Hmm. And I think too often you see people joking around, you know, having having a good time when they're um, sharing important truth with people. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that we could do it with gentle, we can do it with gentleness, and we can do it with love. But in that regard, it's not fun at all. But I would say that it is joyful. Now, I, you know, I realize that um, happiness and joy are sometimes used interchangeably in, in, the, in the Bible. I'm actually writing an article on that for the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I don't know if it's uh, good enough to make it into the next episode. But um, you know, I would say that a lot of those circumstances are not fun, but they're joyful. One thing that I, I, you know, people ask me, why don't more people defend their faith in, in the public with unbelievers? And I, I tell them, I give them two reasons, because of uh, pride and fear. And the reason that I know those two feelings is, is those two reasons is because I feel it every day. Every day that I share my faith with unbelievers in the streets, you know, uh, I have to fight pride and fear. And I say to people, if you're waiting for that to go away, you will never defend your faith. Now, when I, have, when I am too proud or too uh, fearful or, or when I feel that before I go out there, is that fun? That's not fun at all. But at the end of the day, every single time when I have, when I share my faith with people in the public sphere, I always have joy. I have joy that I know that I've honored Jesus Christ as Lord when I've shared the truth about him. And there is joy in that. And there is joy, of course, in seeing the response from unbelievers, knowing that they're putting their head on their pillows, and hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit that God is using that to save them. I mean, um, so I don't have, uh, I would say, uh, happiness or, or fun when I share my faith. But when I do say certain things, one of my favorite things is when an unbeliever comes up to me and says, I'm an atheist. I say, no, you're not. And the look on their eye, in, in their eye, when you say, no, they're not, it doesn't happen all the time, of course, sometimes they think you're crazy, but sometimes the immediate conviction is when most Christians will talk to that person to try and convince them that they really know that God exists, and I just say what the Bible says, no, you're not an atheist. And the look in their eyes, you know, I, I enjoy that, knowing that the Holy Spirit, hopefully, if, the God, if God is going to save them, if they're one of his sheep, that he's working in their hearts, and um, I do love moments like that. Amen. Amen. I I have to agree with you on that. I love walking through the process with someone when that process ends with a new brother or sister in Christ. I love answering the questions. I love taking them into scripture and showing them what the apostle Paul says or you know what Jesus says in the gospel of Mark and 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 seeing the light turn on. And sometimes it's a flick of the switch. Other times it's a it's a dimmer switch and you don't know, you know, at what point did the light actually turn on? We talked a little bit about that previously about, you know, when when does someone actually become a believer? Is it for some it seems gradual, for others it seems automatic. But it is it is such a joyful experience to watch the Holy Spirit bring a dead sinner to life, eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I agree. might not always be fun, but love, it can be joyful. I love the way that you worded that too, though, because the joy that I take is not that I am having an effect on this person, right. but that God, through His Holy Spirit, is using me. Now, God can save people without our intervention, but the means that He's ordained to save people is to use people like us to save people, and that's a joy to know that, you know, such unworthy people that we are, that God uses people, even, I mean, we prayed before we talked that, not that God used us in the lives of unbelievers, that he used even us. Right. And what a joy that is that we see when God uses even people like us in the hearts of uh, hardened sinners. And you know, that's just a beauty to behold. And I'm yeah. very thankful for that. Yeah, yeah. And it is it is joyful. And it's it's humorous in a heavenly sense too, isn't it, Sai? Because you you think about us ourselves and i remember listening to a paul washer sermon one time where he said he he described 
this hypothetical scenario. He said, imagine if we right now were to put all of your sins, everything you've ever done up on the screen behind me, you would run out of this room. And I have to say, you know, Paul Washer always gets me when he preaches, but listening to that thinking, man, ain't that the truth? I am such a sinner. You want to talk about unworthy? You know, my dad has this saying, he goes, Paul called himself the chief of sinners, but he never met you. You know, <laughs> and I feel like that's so true for me. Of all the people for God to use, I am the least likely candidate. And yet God, in his hilarious sense of heavenly humor, decides to use a sinner, a low life like me. He brings me to life. He regenerates me, gives me his Holy Spirit, overcomes my sins one at a time. And, and, on this process of sanctification, where God is making me more like Jesus, he decides he's going to use me, of all people, to share the gospel that saves with other people who he's in the process of saving. And and some of them will be saved and some won't. I leave that up to God. But the fact that he would use us, it's like, Lord, that is hilarious in the best, most heavenly way. My my previous pastor, you know, of the I, I go to the sending church now, like it's a church plant. Mm -hmm. But he often shared a, a story. He says, "Can imagine what it'd be like if you had a device on your forehead where people could read your thoughts and something mm -hmm. like the Paul Wash illustration? How terrible that would be!" And I'm in the congregation thinking, "Man, I would love that." I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I would have to I would have to live under a bridge, but I would love it <laughs> right. because there would be no more pretension. And one thing that I cannot stand, you know, in Christian ministry and life is is pretension. Mm. And, you know, I got a film out there, you know, I've done a number of videos and stuff like that. And sometimes people recognize me and they want to think that I'm something that I'm not because, I, you know, I'm a boiler operator by trade. I'm just doing my best. But, you know, I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. And when people think of me any other way, I think, you know, it'd be nice to have that thing on my forehead so people could see what I really am. That I'm yeah. just a sinner saved, saved by grace. And some people think, well, I'm just too bad. I wouldn't want that out there. And, and my cousin, like I say, the pastor of the Sending Church, he had a wonderful saying, and he said, um, you do not demonstrate the power of a laundry detergent by washing a clean shirt. Yeah. You know? And and that's yeah. the thing. Like, uh, it's the people who, uh, who have been saved by, uh, you know, from their sin and, and the worst, you know, the more glory that God gets. So in a way, I think that it would cut through that pretension. But like I said, I probably have to live under a bridge unless everybody yeah. had that same thing. So that's right. That's right. Well, what did Jesus say? Uh, it's not the well who need a physician, but it's the sick. Mm -hmm. And thank God that God sent the great physician for six sinners like us. Amen. So the topic that we're talking about today then is one that is it it causes a lot of consternation and i'm going to say i believe it's one of the biggest sources of well it's one of the biggest objections among non-believers but it's also a real life issue that believers struggle with as well i've struggled with it um and in, in an existential way and, and and not a philosophical way i mean maybe philosophically sure but deeply existentially as i've gone through in my own family, we've had health issues. We've had uh, multiple bouts with cancer, heart failure, heart transplant. And I remember wrestling with God. I felt like Jacob wrestling with God over this question, over this issue. And like I said, I think it's a major objection that you hear from skeptics, atheists, and unbelievers. And I'm going to put it up on the screen and I'm going to phrase it in a way that an unbeliever might phrase it. And then a Sai, I'd like you to respond to it and tell us if this phrasing is correct or if we need to, to change it, and then how do we answer the objection? And that is this. Why would a good God allow evil? Why would a good God allow evil? So what's your response, and then let's get into it. Well, I would say, you know, there is only one God. So the question really is, why does God, who is good, allow evil? Right. And of course, that is an objection that you hear on the street, but it's an objection not against the existence of God. It's an objection against the providence of God or maybe the goodness of God, but it's not a, an objection against the existence of God. That very question actually shows that the person knows that God exists because you cannot have a problem with evil. You can't even define evil without a standard of goodness and evil, and you can't have that without God. So even the very question 
shows that the person actually knows that God exists. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, we could talk about how that looks in a conversation. But to raise an objection of evil in the world, they must have a standard of goodness and evil, and they can't have that without God. So they might want to know why is there evil, you know, since God is all good, and they profess that he exists. But that's not an apologetic question. That's the question for a Bible study. And of course, you know, um, since I do get that question often, I will share that with my Christian brothers and sisters. But what I do with the unbelievers is expose why when they ask that question, they're actually showing, you know, they're not showing that they don't believe in God. They're showing that they hate him, that they don't like him for the evil that they've experienced in their lives. But it's, it's not a logical objection against the existence of God. It's a psychological objection as to why such a God would allow these things to happen. Okay, but now, before we get into the psychological aspect of it, though, there have been multiple versions of something like a philosophical argument that purports to disprove God's existence, given the existence of evil. And, you know, maybe you've heard of, or perhaps our listeners have heard of the inconsistent triad, you know, God is um, all-powerful, God is all-good or all-loving, and then evil exists. And there's different versions of that. The flow people, dilemma, you know, is one of them. Which we yeah, have. Could you flesh that out? Yeah, that's basically, you know, that's basically saying the same thing. If God is all good, then why does he not get rid of evil? He's all powerful that he can get rid of evil, yet evil exists. So God mm. cannot be all good or all powerful. And of course, the answer that we give as believers is that that person has to prove that God does not have a morally sufficient evil uh, reason for the evil that's in this world. So we say, Okay, fine. You bring up that objection. Prove to us that God does not have a morally sufficient reason for the evil that exists. And of course, that's something that they cannot do. Right. And when the Euthyphro dilemma was originally posed, I mean, we're talking back in ancient Greek times, Plato's concept of quote unquote God was not the God, the triune God of scripture. We, we were talking about uh, uh, limited gods who were personal, but not absolute, supplemented by this concept of fate. Who, which was absolute but not personal, and never the twain shall meet. There was no way of reconciling the, the necessity of fate with the personality and the capriciousness of the quote unquote gods, you know, Zeus, Aphrodite, and things like that. So for Plato, there really was a dilemma. Well, what's the standard of goodness? Is it below the gods or is it above the gods? And and, you know, if it's above the gods, then the gods are not ultimate and the gods are not absolute. Um, but if the standard is below the gods, well, then the gods are just being capricious and um, and goodness is not really goodness. It's just the arbitrary will of God. But we don't really face that objection. We don't really have that dilemma as believers because our concept of God, the true concept of God that we get from Scripture where God has revealed himself, is nothing like those concepts of of god in in the ancient uh greek world would you agree with that yeah but one thing i would like to say when you know people bring up plato or, or examples such as that mm -hmm. i say let's say that uh, plato was going on about you know where does evil lies and above god the standard that he must adhere to or is it below god one that he decrees this is my question let's say he was hypothesizing about that and he was killed where would he go where would he go if he rejected the god that he knows exists when he's hypothesizing about good or evil He'd go to hell for his sin against the God that he knows exists. Right. And a lot of times when people make these, you know, these seemingly solid intellectual arguments, we're forgetting that they're borrowing the very ability to do so from the God that they know exists. So we grant them all of that and we say, well, you can argue against God. And we're going to talk a little bit later on. But the answer that I give someone to Plato is the answer that God gave to Job. You know, and that's that's my answer, ultimate answer to the problem of evil. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on when we go through some of the bad answers that people give. Yeah, and we definitely need to do that because there's no shortage of bad answers out there. And the good news for believers is those answers really are bad, but the the good answer, the biblical answer that God provides for us that's in line with his character and his nature and his word, it's it's a it's a simple biblical answer, everyone has access to it. So maybe we should get into that. Let's talk about what are some of the bad examples of answering this question of why the good God allows evil. So what would be an example of a bad answer, Sai? What you'll often hear out there is free will. If we weren't free to do evil, we wouldn't be free to do good and we would be robots. And um, therefore, that's why God allows evil in this world. 
Now, first of all, as a uh, as a Calvinist, as a Reformed person, I do not su uh, subscribe to free will. I believe there's free choice, and we could talk about the difference between that. I believe that our wills are in bondage to our natures, but we have free choices right. according to our natures. But let's say the person, uh, you know, he, he clarifies that a little bit. He says, well, because we have free choice. And if we weren't free to choose evil, then we wouldn't be free to choose good. This is a question that I've never heard on the street from an unbeliever, but this is the question that I would respond if somebody says there's evil because of free choice. I would say to them, are we going to have free choice in heaven? And of course, I right. say, yeah, I believe we'll have free choice in heaven. We're not going to be robots in heaven. And I say, will there be evil in heaven? And they say, no, there won't be any evil in heaven. I said, so there will be a condition where we will be able to choose freely and there will not be evil. I said, then that therefore cannot be a reason for the problem of evil because God will create a condition where we have free choice and there won't be evil. And the next mm -hmm. question is, why didn't God do that first? You know, so you can't say free choice because, like I say, the, the heaven scenario is there will be a situation where we'll have free choice and there won't be evil. So that cannot be a reason for the problem of evil. Now, sometimes what people say then is, well, you see, it's necessary for us to go through earth first and this present life before we can be perfected. And then in heaven, because we've gone through this process on earth, then God is able to actuate that world. How would you respond? My, my, my question is, you know, why couldn't God just implant us with that memory? Yeah. Well, why do we have to physically, yeah. uh, you know, and these are all sorts of questions that I would say undermine that kind of, and I think there's biblical answers that go along those lines. So I don't deny them outright. I think that God is using evil in our lives, you know, to, to see his glory, to see his greatness and, and yeah. for reasons like that. But I think that it fails when you come up with scenarios where, you know, it being the case, if that is the case, well, in heaven, we're going to have a very similar situation and there won't be any evil. And like I say, my question would be, can God give us that memory without us having to actually have experienced it? And say, sure, he could do that. Why didn't he? And for them, for people to then say, well, he couldn't, it had to be this way because of this reason. I think if it's not biblical, they got to be very careful with an answer like that, because then they're just hypothesizing. And I like what Calvin said, um, where God has not opened his mouth, keep yours closed. Hmm. Amen. But now if God were to give us that memory without us having actually gone through it, wouldn't that be tantamount to lying? dishonesty well not if he gave us that experience through our memories and, okay you know and you know he can even tell us that that's what he's done or you know that memory is the way that he helps us to understand evil and you know the memory in such a way that you know possibly even we know what's going on that it's not real yeah. like a dream when you wake up from a dream you know and right. so i mean there's different ways that you can answer that but you know i would say that that there is an instance that God can make us have those um, memories without giving us the actual experiences that would even soften the blow. I think if I was an unbeliever, I would come up with those kinds of objections. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, and to your point about there being free will in heaven, if there were free will and the whole point of God creating us and, and placing us in this world is for us to exercise our free will, then to be truly free in heaven, we would have to have the possibility of sinning. If that's what it's all about, if it's all about free will. I mean, you think back to Adam, right? Adam was created with supposedly, according to the scheme, free will or libertarian free will, and he sinned. And that was a perfect world. And so... You know, uh, it, of course, you know, we, we reject the idea of, of free will. And just yes, that's right. know, for a quick clarification, I would say, look, I have the nature of a man. I'm free to stand up and walk. I don't have the nature of a bird. I'm not free to flap my arms and fly away. Right. So I would say that my nature is in my, my, my will is in bondage to my nature. Right. And just like th those who are dead in their trespass and sins are not free to choose life. God must first, through his son, raise them to life so that they can freely choose him. Yeah. So now some people describe free will as free choice, then I don't have so much, so much of a problem with it. But libertarian free will is simply not biblical. Yeah. And there's huge problems with that. So my first question to people who believe that, I know it's off topic, I say, does God know the future exhaustively? And if he does, then I say, well, how, how are you free to do other than what God knows you're going to do? Right. And, and the answers for that, that's when you start to see the mental gymnastics, but we could save that for another topic. Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. So bad answer number one is free will. And certainly that's not supported by scripture. It's not, at least it's not derived from scripture. It's not one of these answers where you're going to look at scripture and, and see, you know, free will all over scripture and, and especially as a rationale for why there's evil in the world. So what's the second bad answer then? Another answer that I often hear is so that we can see the goodness of God. 
if there was no evil in the world, we would have nothing to contrast seeing the goodness of God. And again, I think there are scripture verses that would support that kind of view, but I, I think the problem with that is the same question. Will we see the goodness of God in heaven? And if people say, yes, we'll see the goodness of God in heaven, I say, well, there'll be evil in heaven. No, there won't be. So right. that, can't, that cannot be a reason for the problem of evil, because there will be a condition where we do, in fact, see the goodness of God, where we will be not free to do evil. And it, well, we, there will be no evil, let's put it that way. And I say, so that cannot be a reason for the problem of evil. Will the, where there will be a condition where we will, we will see the goodness of God and there will be no evil. Yeah. Do you, um, do you believe, do you take an Augustinian view of evil? Because maybe we should define what evil is. Do, do you believe that evil is the absence of good or does evil have its own substance? What would you say? Well, I think that that we can uh, cover in the third bad okay. answer that people give. Okay. The third bad answer that people give is what's known as the privation argument. Right. And um, I'm sure that you've seen it as well, because I had so many of my Christian friends, friends share this uh, video of a man in a uh, university class. And the professor, who's an unbeliever, says, are there any Christians here? And a man sticks up his hand and he says, yes. And he says, uh, if God is all good, why is there evil in this world? And this young man, and the video says that it's Einstein. I think it's a bogus uh, story. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I don't think it's true at all. But yeah. he raises his hand and he says, Professor, actually, there is no such thing as evil. And the professor says, what are you talking about? And the, the young man says, uh, well, Professor, is there such thing as darkness? And the professor says, of course, there's darkness. You know, at night, you can look outside, it's dark. And the young man says, actually, there is no such thing as darkness. You cannot measure darkness. You can only measure light. Darkness is actually just an absence of light. Hmm. And the young man said to the professor, is there such thing as cold? And the professor says, yes, of course, there is cold. The young man said, actually, there is no such thing as cold. You cannot measure cold. You can only measure heat. Cold is the absence of heat. And the young man said, well, therefore, evil is not a real thing. It's only the absence of good, the absence of God. And then Christian, they say it's Albert Einstein, and they share this, and you know they love it. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, who controls the light switch? <laughs> who, can, who controls the thermostat? <laughs> right. Why did God allow for there to be a condition of an absence of Him? Right. Or, or an absence of good. And now you're right back to the same problem. And Christians are sharing this, and I say it's a terrible answer because you're right back to square one. Now, here's the thing. It may be a good definition of what evil is, hmm. but it cannot be a reason for the problem of evil. Yeah, think about a donut maker. Every donut has a hole in the middle, and it wouldn't be right to say that the hole is... Um, well, there is no hole because the hole is just a lack of donut. Well, sure, but the donut maker planned for there to be a hole in the middle of that donut. So it doesn't explain away the hole by saying, well, it's just a lack of donut. You're right. Someone made that donut in the same way someone made this world. So even if evil is the deprivation or the privation of good, whoever made this world still needs to, you know, we still need an explanation as to why he made it with evil in it. Right. So those are three um, basic bad answers that I get. And the people say, well, uh, what answer do you give? And I say, I give people the same answer that God gave to Job, as we were talking about earlier. Of course, uh, you know, people know the story of Job, that he was an upright man, and Satan came to God and said, the only reason he's upright is because you've given him everything. And God says, okay, um, you can take everything away, but just don't kill him. Or just don't uh, touch his body was the first the thing that he said to Satan. So Satan, you know, kills all his children, takes all his you know possessions away, and um, and Job still follows him. And Satan goes back to um, God and says, the reason he's still following you is because he, he didn't let me touch his body. And God says, okay, you can touch his body, but don't kill him. So he afflicts him with all these sores, and and Job is in agony. His friends are you know basically mocking him, and. Um, and so Job is crying out to God, why, God, why, why? He's asking him, basically, he's asking the same question that we're asking, why is there evil? Why is this happening to me? Why, God, why? <laughs> and then God finally answers him. And he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you, basically, when I created the universe? Where were you, Job? And he asked him, I think two chapters long, where were you, Job? And what did Job do when God confronted him like this? It says in Job chapter 40, verse 4, I believe he put his hand over his mouth. He said, I spoke too soon. And I say, wasn't Job so happy when God finally told him why there was evil, why these things happened to him? He never told him. And people, I think, often say that, you know, in heaven, you're going to know why this evil thing happened to you. But there is no promise of that in Scripture. 
The thing is, in heaven, we're probably not going to care. So the answer that I gave jo uh, people, the same answer that God gave Job, where were you? Where were you, Job? And I know that Scripture teaches that God is all good and there is evil. So the conclusion that we must make is that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that, that he allows in this world. Now, the thing is, I understand that's the biblical answer. And I don't very often get into the topic of evil on the street because, as we could talk about a little bit later on, the very presumption of evil is a presumption of a standard that there is goodness, which a person can't make sense of without God. But this is a question that I ask people when I'm on the street. I say, would it be evil for a man to stick a knife into the chest of a three-year-old girl? And most often they say, oh yeah, that'd be terrible, it'd be evil. And I say, I'm going to give you a little bit more information. This girl, she has a heart defect. She's going to be dead in a week if she doesn't have surgery. But she lives in a country where they have to pay for their own surgery. And the family can't afford it. So the mother goes on national television. She's crying out. She says, please help my daughter. My daughter's going to be dead if she doesn't have this life-saving surgery. Please help her. And a world-famous heart surgeon sees this you know, from across the world. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do that surgery. So he pays for the flight to bring this girl to his country. To, you know, he pays for the hospital, pays for the attendance. This girl is under anesthetic. She's laying on a table. And the knife he's about to stick into her chest is a scalpel. He's about to save her life. I'm sure a story like that it really hits home for someone like you, yeah. uh, Joe, with what you've gone through in your life. And I say, is that man evil? And they say, no, no it's, the most, it's the most loving thing he could do. I said, 30 mm -hmm. seconds ago, you told me he was evil. Right. I said, what's the difference? The difference is now you have all the information. Mm -hmm. So when evil happens in my life, and it does happen in my life, I watched my father rot away from adult diabetes, lose both his legs, paralyzed on one side, died in agony with bed sores. But I know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And I know that God has all the information. So the best times in my life are when I trust him in circumstances like that, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. And my worst time, worst times in my life is when I don't trust him in circumstances like that. But the beauty of it is, is to know that God has all the information. And scripture says, in fact, that for his loved ones, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And that's a comfort in those times. Man, amen. And, you know, the, the verse you just cited there is from, of course, Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 and following is just such an amazing passage about God's providential care and his love for his people. And then right then in the next chapter of Romans, Romans 9, we have this amazing response where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is listing some hypothetical objections to uh, God and, and his goodness and what God does in the world and, and how God treats people. And his response is not, well, no, you see, um, God's actually good because of this, or God, you shouldn't be so mad at God. And, and here's why he just goes, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And it's, it's the, um, it's, it's the same response that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter four. I've, I've got it written here in Daniel four thirty four and following Nebuchadnezzar, of course, the great, the old Babylonian king who was incredibly humbled by God. And when he came out of this period of stupor after God had humbled him, he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does whatever he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? We we just can't even question God. That's this. That's the, the attitude we have to have towards God. But then as his children, as his people, we know that God comforts us even in the midst of evil and incredible suffering. Um, God is there with us. He's beside us when our child has to go into the operating room. Um, and we also have hope that one day, even if we don't fully understand, and I'm glad you mentioned that too, the Bible does not promise us that one day God will explain everything to us. But he does promise us that as his child, as his children, there will be one day when he will wipe away every tear from our eye. And that is our hope. Our hope is not in a final explanation, although I would love to have that explanation. But my hope is in the relationship I have with Jesus Christ and the promise that one day all that pain, all that suffering will come to an end. And it'll it'll just be joy and it'll just be peace and it'll just be the comfort that we have with God. Is that is that not our great hope? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, sometimes we do get the answers. Sometimes we get the answers in this world. That's right. And Malcolm Muggridge, you know, I don't think I would agree with his theology, but he said something very profound. He said, everything he's learned, he's learned through pain. Mm. Now, sometimes I think I just don't want to learn anymore. 
you know. Right. But, you know, and I remember, too, my mother, we, we were going to this pastor, and my mother, um, she actually did not like his preaching. And um, I asked my mother, my mother said something very profound. She said, he hasn't suffered enough. And I thought, what, a, what an interesting uh, thing to say. And I thought, you know, that was actually the case, that it's when people have suffered that that's when they truly know how to deal with people, how to love people who are going through similar circumstances. So, again, not a reason for it, but, um, you know, it's, I think it's comforting to know that sometimes we do get the answers as to why these things happen in our lives. But as, as far as, you know, more of a, um, a, a real-world example, I was um, in a small group from a church that I was going to a number a while ago, and I just came to understand it's apologetic. And then some uh, one young man in the group, he said, um, there's a guy at my work, and he was abused by the church growing up, and he rejected the existence of God because of the evil in his life. And he says, how do I talk to someone like that? And I said, okay, I'll play that man, and you talk to me, and you tell me why I should become a Christian. So, um, you know, um, they, they, they said to me, well, the Bible says that uh, what these people did to you was wrong. I said, the Bible, you believe in a dusty old book written by Bronze Age goat herders. You know, we've heard the objection. And they said, well, Jesus said that what these people did to you was wrong. I said, Jesus, you believe in the tooth fairy. You believe in Santa Claus. You believe in the Easter bunny. And they said, well, the, the peace that you get, uh, you know, if you trust Jesus. And I said, well, Muslims have peace. Buddhists have peace. Why shouldn't I be one of them? And their mouths were closed. They had nothing more to say. And I said, okay, now one of you play that person. And I said, keep in mind, you're not the actual person because we grieve with those who grieve and we mourn with those who mourn. Sometimes, you know, it's not an apologetic situation. Sometimes you just bring a casserole and you put your arm around them. You know, so one, one of the women, she said, okay, I'll play that person. I said, okay, I'm going to be a little bit more direct with you since you're not the actual person. But I said, you were abused by the church growing up. She said, yes, I was. I said, that was evil, wasn't it? She says, yes, it was evil. I said, it wasn't just against your personal preference. It wasn't just something you didn't like. It was evil. She said, yes, it was evil. I said to her, what is evil in your worldview? And she thought long and hard, and she finally said, well, I guess whatever society says. I said, which society? I said, the Nazis killed Jews. I said, we went and stopped them. I said, is our morality perfect? She goes, no. I said, but is it better than theirs? Yeah, it's better than theirs. Not killing Jews is better than killing Jews. I said, so we went and stopped them. I said, now let me ask you a question. If somebody says, what's two plus two? And one person says five, and another person says five million. Who's got the better answer? She goes, well, they're both wrong. I said, but who's got the better answer? She goes, well, the person said five. I said, how do you know that? She goes, well, because the right answer is four, and it's closer to the right answer. And I said, well, I just asked you if not killing Jews was better than killing Jews. And you said, yes. And I asked you if we had the right answer. And she said, no. I said, the one, how do you know is one is better than the other? You can only know that one is better than the other if you have the right answer. Right. You have the absolute standard, and you cannot have that without God. So I said, you need to join me in condemning what these people did to you. Because, because God exists, I have a standard by which I can say that was evil. And you need to join me in condemning them. Because without God, all we are is evolved pond scum. And what one bag of evolved primordial slime does to another bag of advanced primordial slime is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. It's only evil because God exists, and you know that. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a complaint about it. Now, I hear that, and it makes me think of a conversation that I had recently with an atheist on my podcast, The Think Podcast. And... On, on that podcast, we got into morality, and as atheists often do, he tried to go the route of well-being. Uh, what we often, in the Christian world, we call human flourishing. Well-being is often a term that atheists use. I don't particularly like either one, uh, unless you flesh out what it means. But what about well-being, side? What, what about just, look, we're humans. It makes sense, doesn't it, to promote well-being for the species or well-being for my fellow you know human beings and and why don't we just define evil as that which goes against well-being you know that last thing you said is actually the key why don't we just define it as the exact opposite of that <laughs> you know if we can if, if if morality can be stipulated anybody is free to stipulate their own but one thing i, I tell people is i rarely get into the argument of morality unless the argument starts there because right. we're granting them truth we're granting them knowledge we're granting them the uniform in nature in order to argue moral things but when they say well-being i say why why is well-being even right mm. why isn't power right 
why isn't beauty right? You know, why can't I stipulate what I think is right and well-being takes a, a backseat to that? Now, they yeah. might want to stipulate well-being, but one, they can't even define it without God. And two, they can't even say why well-being is right. And the question is well-being of the individual, well-being of the society, well-being of the nation. Who gets to decide that? And, you know, I, I like what C.S. Lewis says, you know, they're talking about different keys on a, on a, um, on a piano, but they can't tell why we should play which key and which key we should play when. Hmm. So they might say in this instance, you know, this instance, this is right, in this instance, this is right. But how do you differentiate between the two of them without an absolute standard? And you can't have that without God. And that reminds me of a story that I had in Peterborough, England, but uh, I don't know if you want to interject something before I get into that. Well, my, my next question was going to be, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, of course, but why must God be the absolute standard? Or if it, now again, I'm parroting some of the atheistic objections that I've gotten recently. All right, fine. Why your God? Why not Zeus? Or why not Brahma? What do you say to that? Well, first of all, I say, then which one do you believe in? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah well, because, I, you know, I don't believe if, in any of them, but you believe in God. And why do you believe in this God instead of that God? Yeah, I say because he's the only one that exists. And mm -hmm. if you reject him, your worldview is absurd. But I'll say to the person that I've said in How to Answer the Fool as well, I said, we could argue whether or not the moon is made of green cheese. But neither of us believes that. So right. why should we even bother? Right. Now, if you want to posit that a deity is necessary to make sense of good or evil, fine. But then you've left, you've left atheism. And if you want to have a debate over you know, what you profess to be God, I'll be happy to have that conversation. But you're saying there are no gods. Right. It doesn't make any sense at all to have that conversation. So if, if evil makes no sense without an absolute standard of goodness, then how do we know that our God, the true God, the triune God of Scripture, is that absolute standard? Is there a competitor? Is there another God who could possibly be that standard? If ever there was a leading question, right? No, well, I would say, um, so this is when I first came to understand this apologetic. A friend of mine said, you know, very something very similar. He said, Sai, the thing that I hate most about you is how certain you are that God exists. Hmm. How are you so certain that God exists? The kind of friends I have. And I looked him in the eye and I said, you know how I'm so certain that God exists? The same way you are. Right. But I'm following him and you're not and I don't know why. Right. And my friend, we just got to the restaurant five minutes earlier, but he stood up from the table, he looked at his hands as if he had to go wash them, and he walked to the restroom and I looked at his face, he was crying. So when people say, how do I know it's that God, the God? I say the same way that you do. The difference between that person and me is not that they think it's some God and I think it's the Christian God. Right. The difference between that person and me is that I profess that God and they suppress knowledge of that God when the Bible says they actually do know him. But you, that's the one thing you'll see. You, know, you, see, you don't see people arguing against uh, people that say SpongeBob is God or, or stuff like that. They'll argue against the Christian because they know that that's the case, as it says in Romans 1, that they know this God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness about him. Yeah. Amen. Um, was there was there something else that you wanted to... Yeah, that story. So I was in yeah. Peterborough, England, and a friend of mine was talking to this fellow. I think his name was Paul. And he brought the fellow over to me. And um, I said to him, you know, as I often start a conversation with, if you were to die today, where would you end up going? And the guy said, heaven. And I said, why would that be the case? He says, well, I guess, you know, because I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I said, okay, can you do me a favor? Can you tell me um, what is goodness? Hmm. And he said, well, um, you know, I might help an old lady across the street and that would be good. And I said, well, why is that good? And he listed off a number of reasons. He said, well, it's good for society. That lady gets across the street. You know, it's good for her. She gets to where she's going. And, you know, what goes around comes around. So he listed like five different reasons why it would be good. And I said, you realize that if you do not uh, give glory, if you don't do it for the glory of God helping that old lady across the street, it actually adds to your condemnation. Because it says anything in Scripture, anything that is not done in faith is sin. I said, so if you help that old lady across the street and it's not done to the glory of God, it actually adds to your condemnation. And he said, I could never worship a God that me helping an old lady across the street adds to my condemnation. I said, let me explain to you why that's the case. I said, I asked you why it was good to help an old lady across the street. And you said, well, it's good for society. It's good for that woman. You gave all these different reasons. I said, do you know what you did with each one of those reasons? I said, you gave God the finger. Hmm. He said, this, you said, me, 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 society, all these different reasons. You said it was good to help that old lady across the street because you were making yourself God. You were the arbiter of goodness. I said, do you know why it would be good to help the, that old lady across the street? Because she's created in the image of God. And I'm commanded to honor him, to represent him on this earth. So when I help that old lady across the street, I'm giving glory to God. And then I have God as a standard of goodness. And I said, he made himself God. And I said, do you know where the first place that happened? In the Garden of Eden. 
God said, do not eat of this fruit. And Satan came along and said, hath God really said that? And what did Adam and Eve do? God said this, Satan said this, I'm going to choose. I said, that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying it's good to help that old lady across the street because you've made yourself the standard of goodness. That's why it adds to your condemnation. And the man said to me, well, you know, I get emotional sometimes when I see a homeless person. I said, well, you're an emotional God, but you've made yourself God. And that's what I try and bring people to is that when they bring up problems of evil in this world, they are the arbiter of what is good and evil. And I'm saying that, that it's the same sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. They're making themselves God and yeah. that adds to their condemnation. So, you know, I think we'd really be remiss in talking about evil if we didn't offer some good news to people who hate evil, who look out at the world and are distressed, who are reading the headlines and they're seeing, man, I, I tell you what's on my heart right now, Cy. I mean, abortion is always on my heart, but I'm thinking about what's going on in China right now to the Uyghur people. And I'm looking at this modern day Holocaust. There's there's multiple mo modern day Holocausts going on. And my heart breaks. And 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 not only that, side, but I'm enraged, brother. I'm I'm righteously angry. And my anger is not always righteous, but in this case, you know, I'm righteously angered by what's going on. And and I hate evil. And I know there's other people who are who hate evil. At least they they hate certain instances of it. And maybe there's somebody who's watching who's convicted about the evil that they themselves have committed and even the evil of their own good works. And last time, last episode, we presented the good news for skeptics. Maybe this time we can talk about good news for people who hate evil and are, are wrestling with it. Could we do that? Yeah. Well, what I would tell people is you cannot out sin God. <laughs> you know, there are people who say, I can't come to Jesus because I'm, I'm too sinful. And yeah. what that does, it actually denigrates Christ. It denigrates his sacrifice on the cross. You're saying, Jesus, what you did on the cross was not good enough for me. It might be good enough for that person who sinned less than me, but it wasn't good enough for me. And, you know, like I said, that quote from my pastor, you, you do not demonstrate the power of a laundry detergent by washing a clean shirt. So if people are, you know, in that position of sin, that, you know, we come to Christ and we realize that his sacrifice is sufficient. One drop of his blood is sufficient to save the most vile sinner. And, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, he said, um, among sinners, I am chief. And that is, you know, the, uh, the Apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. And so people are thinking that there's no hope for them when they're sitting at home there. You know, they ought to read the Bible and read about the Apostle Paul and how he saves sinners like you and me. And there are people out there who say that as Christians, they don't sin anymore. And that is a, a grievous, woeful twisting of Scripture. But the difference between that person and me is that our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Truly good news. Um, brother, anything else to add on, on this subject? Well, um, I think I, I'll share one story, actually, that um, one thing, maybe, you know, I'm going to get into one of the other podcasts, but one of the things that um, often comes up um, when I'm evangelizing on the street is people come up with the um, homosexuality. And they say to me, Sai, um, what do you think about homosexuality? It doesn't matter what I think about it. You say, well, what did God think about it? And, you know, I could come right out and say that it's an abomination. They deserve an eternity in hell. But, you know, I think that we have to be gentle, recognize except for, that except for the grace of God, that's us. So I tell them this story. And I say, I was evangelizing. It was one of the Super Bowl outreaches. It was in Indianapolis. And I was on one street corner. And on the opposite street corner was Westboro Baptist Church. Hmm. And so these people in the crowd are saying, what do you think about um, homosexuality? And I say, well, let me tell you this story. And I said, and these, this church, they had signs. And what did the science say? And if they don't say what the science say, most of them know what the science say, then I say it. God hates facts. And I said, I had a homosexual fellow come up to me. And he looked at the signs that people held across the street. And he said, how come you don't have a sign like that? And I said, because apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, he hates me too. Yeah. I said, I'm no better than you. I'm better off. Amen. And so if people are out there and there's Christians who profess to be better than them, then what they're professing to you is a woeful sin. Joel and I are not better than anybody watching this podcast. Amen. The difference is, is by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we're better off. So if you are uh, involved in sin or committing that evil, you need to come to Jesus Christ and live. Repent of your sin and put your trust in him, and he will wash a sinner like you as he has done like the both of us. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but now we can rest on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and go to bed um, with the peace and the comfort and knowing that he has paid for the sins of people like us. 
Amen, brother. Man, so encouraging to hear that. And um, I'm so glad that there is good news that uh, that follows the bad news, the reality of evil in the world. But thanks be to God, he's overcome that evil and he offers that victory to each and every one of us if we'll repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen, brother. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for watching. Thank you for listening. If you're listening later on the podcast and um, just want to give a quick plug. If you haven't yet visited size website, I, I used to go to your website, Sai, all the time, man. If I was going to be, you know, uh, talking about Mormonism, uh, Latter-day Saints and, uh, or, or Islam. I mean, I'd go to your website and there's some incredible resources on there. Um, and I, I just, I want to encourage our listeners and viewers. If you haven't been to that website, you don't know about the little, the, the path that it takes you on, um, and the questions that it asks you. And I don't want to give you any spoilers right now, but let me just say you, if you're a believer, you will enjoy going through that website. It's a little bit of a choose your own adventure kind of deal. And if you're a, if you're not a believer and you haven't been to that website, you really need to go to that website and answer the questions honestly and, uh, and see where it takes you. So proof that God exists.org is the website size. That's still a good place for people to follow your work. That's where they can find me and contact information there. If anybody wants to get a hold of me. Wonderful. Uh, there's also, uh, is your Patreon information there as well? Yeah, on my, um, I think on my donate tab, I think you can find my Patreon there. I actually have a PayPal too, but PayPal hates Christian. So I had to remove the link to it because they froze my account. And um, so, but there is a link that people can donate directly if they don't want to do the monthly Patreon support, which I would also uh, much be much appreciate. Absolutely. If you want to support this show, Answer Anyone with Side 10 Bruden Kate, you can go to patreon.com slash answer anyone. We're putting new posts up there. Also, I want to give a quick plug as well. If um I forget which tier, there's different tiers you can you can donate at, but um if you partner with us above a certain tier, we are going to have a bonus episode and a special uh, Q and a, a special, ask me anything that, that, uh, will be a special feature and a bonus for, uh, some of our Patreon, uh, patrons. So definitely check that out. Patreon.com slash answer anyone. And then of course, if you want to get more content from the think Institute, go to the think.institute and you can contact me there at the website as well. So, um, be sure to tune in next week as we have our, our next installment of Answer Anyone with Cy 10 Kate, And um, we're looking forward to that. Hopefully you are too as we prepare you to answer anyone. Mm -hmm.